Surely there are people here who remember the uh, TV series, The Fugitive. You know, David Jansen played the uh, Dr. Kimball. He was wrongfully uh, accused of murdering his wife and you know, was murdered by the one-arm uh, guy. And um, so he's, he's, he's convicted and on the train trip uh, to be put into uh, to jail, the train wrecks. He's able to escape. And for four TV years, he is on uh, the run. He is being chased by that persistent police lieutenant, Gerard, while he's also trying to find uh, the killer. Now, oftentimes, Gerard almost catches Dr. Kimball, but the fugitive manages to elude uh, his pursuer each time and um, goes on to live for another day. Well, we have a fugitive that we're looking at in, in our text, and this is the fugitive uh, David, who is pursued persistently by King Saul. So I invite you to, to look with me again uh, at the text. And uh, basically, there are three sections here. Verses 1 through 14 tell us the story, which uh, Tom just read about, the, the story of David at the city of Keilah. And he rescues that city from the Philistine raiders. And then when the city is threatened again, this time by King Saul, who's going to be coming and besieging that city, he, uh, he finds out, uh, David is able to find out that the city would actually turn him over. And then he escapes again into the wilderness. Now, it'd be interesting. I mean, I really would like to discuss more about the uh, city's decision that they would have made it at that time. But it's clear that what's important to the writer is actually how David found out what the decision would be, how he learned also what the will of God would be. Let me just read some of those verses again. So, first of all, he's being he's told about Keilah being uh, attacked by the Philistines. And it says, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go. Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. David's men aren't sure that's a great idea. They are on the run themselves. You know, what's going to happen? So David goes back just to make sure. And it says, the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. David obeys, and sure enough, he gets that victory. Now, what about leaving the city? The same thing. David says David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. So he, we're told a little bit more explicitly what he does. He goes to Abiathar the priest, and he says, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down? As your servant has heard, please tell me. And the Lord says, well, as a matter of fact, he will come down. And David asks again, well, will men of Keilah surrender me? Yes, they actually will. Wouldn't you love to have that kind of direct uh, connection to God? I mean, you know, Lord, if I go on this trip, will such and such happen? And he tells you exactly what will happen or not. Now, in each case, probably the, that term that he, 
ephod or ephod is, is probably used in each time. And what is an ephod that provides this kind of direct hotline to God? Well, it's an article of clothing. It's a vest, okay? A vest for the high priest to wear. It's a sleeveless vest, and on it are some precious stones that are attached, and they represent, actually on their names, are the tribes of Israel. So, in other words, it is the official garment worn by the high priest when he is carrying out his official duties, and it bestows on him his authority. Much in the same way, for example, that a judge will put on his robe when he carries out his official duties. Or church priests will wear their robes. Or even in other churches you've been in, and the minister is wearing a robe, is wearing that as a a sign of authority to preach the word. Now, we remember from last Sunday that the high priest, Ahimelech, was murdered. And the only one that escaped was his son, Abiathar. When Abiathar escaped, he managed to get the ephod with him. And so he, he has that now, which means he has taken on, in a sense, the mantle of the high priest. Abiathar is now the high priest. Well, what does a high priest do? Well, he's a mediator. He mediates between God and his people. So, too, he is the one who represents God to man, and then he actually represents man to God. And that's what's happening here for David. David is called upon uh, Abiathar, and when he says, bring the uh, ephod here, he means, put it on, be my mediator for me, and, um, and tell me what I need to know from God. Now, how does Abiathar receive that answer from God? Well, we're not told explicitly here, but most likely it is through the Urim and the Thummim. Now, what in the world were the Urim and the Thummim? Well, they were objects. They were in the pouch of a breastplate that was connected to that ephod. Now, we don't know what they look like. There's never been a description of them. There's never been a... a picture of some kind drawn on stone or whatever to tell us what they looked like. And we don't even know how they were used, but somehow they were used to determine the will of God. And only in this case, by the way, only the high priest could use them. So you couldn't get your own Urim and Thummim and set up a shop as the Urim and Thuman reader shop, you know, for people to come in. This is only for the high priest. And and the high priest only uses this for official business with either the king or some other ruler. So the point of uh, all of this is simply to say the writer is saying that David had access to God's representative. Through that representative, was able to find out what he needed to know in order to do God's will. Now we go down to verses 15 to 18, and that gives us another scenario of help for David. And this time it's in the form of a friend of actually the king's son, Jonathan. And Jonathan comes and he goes specifically to encourage David 
with his own information. Now, his information is a reminder to David. What he, what David, and, and as he says, even his father knows. That David is the chosen one of the Lord who will become the king of Israel. And therefore, he can know that the Lord will help him. So Jonathan understood. Jonathan is an amazing character. And he understood David's destiny from the start. And he has always, from that beginning, supported him. Jonathan is that friend in David's corner who, as that fight is just wearing him down, you know, at each time lifts up his spirit, does whatever he needs to do to help David continue on in his particular fight. And then we have verses 19 through 29 to finish up the chapter, which presents the complete opposite scenario. We have the natives or the citizens of Ziph, who are called the Zephites, and they take it upon themselves to go to Saul. Evidently, David is in their territory, and they volunteer to turn David over to him. Now, this leads David to his most harrowing experience to date. We're given this depiction that uh, Saul has brought his soldiers. They're coming up one side of the mountain. They're chasing David, who has crossed over to the other side with his men. And Saul's about to get him. And then comes this message, just like in, in, in a movie or in a TV Series and just where, you know, the person's about to open the door, just see where the person is hiding, and somebody speaks to him and catches their attention. In this case, it's a messenger is coming and saying, Philistines are raiding, um, and that um, Saul needs to go back and do his duty as a king. So David is aided once again, this time not by a priest, not by a friend, This is by the direct aid of God's power in providing this kind of just chance raid and message that came at just the right time. So like the fugitive, David survives to live another day. So what is our takeaway from this Sunday's episode of the fugitive? Well, there are a number of things we can take away. Uh, just looking at the different characters that's in play here. First of all, let's look at Saul. Saul is, Saul is just, in my mind, the saddest figure in the Bible. He is just so clearly deteriorating, morally, mentally, in, in who he is. He, he has gone from being a king that, you know, was trying to do the best that he could. He was in a job over his head, but, but he's trying hard to a man who is obsessed with jealousy, fear, hatred, particularly for David. You think about it. Here's a king. His very job, he's a king that is surrounded by enemy neighbors. And all the time, he's having to be diligent in protecting his company, you know, from these different raiders. We see twice in our own chapter about the, the Philistines. But what is he doing with all of his time? He's devoting his resources, his soldiers, his time and energy to to capturing David, chasing him. But the most repulsive description of him 
It's actually found in verse 21. You know, the Ziphites have come to him. They've offered to, to turn David over him to him. And he replies this way. May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Think about it. The previous chapter, what had Saul done? He had had the high priest and all of the priest's family murdered. And he has the, the gall to bless someone in the name of the Lord. These are the priests of the Lord. And now he's... I mean, it's just bad. You've got people coming to, to betray David, who is favored of the Lord... And we're told that that Saul knew that he was favored by the Lord. They're coming to betray him. And Saul said, well, the Lord just bless you. And that's that's as low as you can go. And Saul's lesson is this, is, is to beware of sliding. Just kind of keep sliding into a sinful way of life. You know, the danger, and this is the danger for Saul, is not that we will outwardly reject God. That we'll even use God to justify our sin. Even calling upon him to bless what is obviously sinful. I mean, this is true today. Church leaders who have given the so-called blessing of the Lord on abortion, same-sex marriage, transgender changes, and more that keeps going on. They, they do this. It's not only simply to say that it's okay, but the Lord's blessings is upon these things. Or they're like, like the pastor I heard preaching to his flock. His own unbelief. And as reading the scripture, the story of Jesus on the road to, to Emmaus, and reading it and just saying outright, this did not happen. It's one thing to have your own doubts, but to teach your doubts to others. As a minister of the Lord, cross the line. Now we can do the same thing in our in our personal lives. I remember, I remember one man coming to me, um, and uh, I mean he's cheating on his wife. He denied, but, you know, he's cheating on his wife, and he's telling me, "I've never my devotions to God. I've just never have felt closer to God." I said, "Look." I, it is, I said, <laughs> that worries me. It's one thing to sin, but then to, to, to speak as though God is blessing your sin. But this is what happens. We're either going to repent or we're going to have to justify our sin. And that's what's happening. Like I said, it's one thing to fall into sin. It's another to recruit God's blessing of that sin. Now there's Jonathan. Let's go to a very positive uh, uh, example for us. Now, in contrast to his father, Jonathan's character just only grows more honorable. You know, Saul had feared David. Why? He's a rival to his throne. Well, Jonathan is Saul's heir. He also ought to have had the same fear. Instead, he recognized David as truly the new king that is ordained by God which Saul knew as well. And far from being seized with jealousy, he becomes David's truest ally. There's there's no greater friend 
that Jonathan has than David. So Jonathan's lesson to us is this. What matters in life is not getting the the favors we think that God ought to give to us. What matters is supporting the will and the work of the Lord in, in wherever and in whomever we see that work taking place. Now, I apply this personally. We, we ministers struggle with this all the time. We're always comparing ourselves and our work, our churches, to others. And it's difficult not to be jealous. There's no reason to be jealous. I mean, everybody wants the church that we, Sam and I have here. But it's tough to, to look at others. And, and they're, they're being praised. They're, their churches are big. And they're just... You know, they don't have to self-publish books. Publishers want their books. And it's tough not to be jealous. Now, I'm not going to kill. I'm not out to kill any of my more successful brethren. But I do catch myself being critical, being non-supportive, always pointing out, or in my own mind, anyhow, well, this, they're not doing it the right way. They're not doing this, and they're not doing that. Well, that's the same thing that's going on here. And you have to watch yourselves with this. It happens every time that you, you find yourself comparing yourself with others, and especially others within the church family. Let me ask, I mean, do you ever find yourself thinking that, you know, really I ought to have received that recognition? I should have been chosen for that position, that, that blessing that, that others are receiving. That really should be coming to me. We need to be careful that we do not fall into the into resentment. And all the more, we need to be careful that uh, instead of falling into bitterness, that we rest in the commendation that we receive, not from other people, but from the Lord himself. And that we need to be those who bless and support what the Lord gives to others. So we've, we've got Saul, it's a bad illustration. We've got Jonathan, a great illustration. Then, we, then we've got those two cities, Keilah and Ziph, um, in their self-serving practices. Now, I, I tell you, i got more sympathy for the city of Keilah than, than Ziph, but both are guilty of being willing to turn over an innocent man a man who had personally saved, delivered Keilah from her enemies, a man whom we'd already been told had been fighting for Israel and winning many victories and so protecting uh, the, the, the nation of Israel, a man who is clearly blessed by God, and they're ready to turn him over. <laughs> you know, not, we're not going to endanger our lives. In the case of Keilah, Keilah doesn't want to be in danger of Saul, Zeph looks like this is an opportunity to rise in the esteem of Saul. So they're willing to turn over a man who will be killed for their own perceived protection or for their advancement. Now their lesson for us, or one of their lessons for us, is examples of those, us in the church, those in the church who are willing to, to compromise. Because we want either to to receive the blessing of the world or at least to uh, be protected from it. 
Again, for example, I speak of liberal churches, and when I use the term liberal, I mean those who consciously reject the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. And, and I've noted how they have a marvelous way of changing their moral values to fit the times and their culture. It just so happens that whatever has become the new moral and value of the culture, by golly, they have that same view as well. Okay. Also, there are those who have consciously, you're not quite as aware of it as I am, particularly in seminaries and so on, but who have consciously jettisoned foundational beliefs about Jesus. And they do it very consciously, and they'll tell you why. Those miracles and what you believe that Jesus is the only way, people today can't accept that kind of stuff. And so if you want to be accepted, you just got to get rid of that stuff. And the irony is that they are the fastest declining churches. But, but I also want to think about conservative churches. I mean, we've got our own share of compromising the values of the culture. Now, those of us, my age and older, you're old enough, and for those of you like me who grew up in the South, you can remember how our churches defended Segregation, not just in the schools, but in the very churches themselves. Even use scripture to uh, promote that. And if we go back to our ancestors, like I do, and I have uh, the will of one of my ancestors, and it's bequeathing property, naming by name certain slaves as property. And again, we can go back and, and... and the ministers preached it, uh, the theologians defended it by Scripture, supposedly. Now, I tell you, I have an uneasy conscience. Not about my ancestors, not about those folks. I don't know what I would have done if I was a pastor in those times. I don't know what I would have taught. I don't know whether I would have stood up for anything. And it weighs upon me. Now, where else can we see this tendency? I'm going to take you to a whole new thing. I'll bring you to today. The things that, again, never would have been thought of back then, but now are today. You know, there's one, you know, the reason why conservative churches do better than liberal churches, clearly, I think, is because we proclaim the word of God. We believe in it. We uphold it. On the other hand, what we also do, it's an odd thing that we do, is we do much better than our liberal churches, is that we are more adept in adopting the latest innovations of the business world, and particularly of the entertainment world, without, without using any scripture to, to, to try to understand it, to see if this is okay. It's what works. Compromise is easy to fall into when we covet success, and when we fear failure. Well, let me move to one other person, and this is David. David is noted here for his resourcefulness and his reliance upon God. And through that, he keeps escaping Saul's clutches. We know that one way he's able to do it is, by golly, just have Abiathar there, just tell him where Saul is and what Saul is doing. 
But actually what he mostly does is he depends upon his own resources. He becomes a master at hiding and living in the wilderness and in the mountains. But I tell you what's even more impressive, I think, about David. It's his perseverance in the face of adversity. I mean, again, think about David's story, who he is. This is the champion who defeated Goliath, who won the the praises of the people. He, He even had the favor of the king. This is the man who knows himself to have been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king. And here he is, his life is reduced to that of a fugitive. He's even betrayed by the very people whom he has protected. What gives with David? How is he able to carry on? Well, we know from his Psalms, we know one thing, that David was very prone to all kinds of emotions. But even at his lowest, he never rejects God, never gives up. He argues with God, but he never gives up on God. And David teaches us the very basic, profound lesson we need to know. And it's found in the psalm that Russ read earlier. And at the beginning of that psalm, it says that it was written during that period in which he was in that territory of Zeph and he was being chased by Saul. That's when he wrote the psalm. Let me just read the first four verses. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is mine, is the upholder of my life. So what David teaches us is very simple. Always remember this. God is our helper. David is saved not by his own resourcefulness, not even because he has that wonderful ephod. He is saved by God, who is the upholder of his life, who had promised him that he was going to be the king. And when you understand that, when you know in your heart as well as in your mind, that you, this stuff, that, that God is upholding you, that he's got you, that he will hold you fast. It's then that you can remain true to God. When you can trust him to fulfill his word for you, well, that's when you can hold on to his commands and to his will and do his will, whatever comes. You neither fear the anger of the culture around you, Neither do you covet the blessing of the culture. And I tell you, I want to, I want to speak specifically to those who are younger than my generation. You know, at my age, in circumstances, all the changes that are taking place today are not going to, not likely to endanger me. But your situation is different. You're the first generation to grow up in America, anyhow, to interact in a society that is hostile, hostile to the teachings of Scripture. 
And as you make your way in the world, you're going to find people who are angry with you because of your efforts to be obedient to God's word, because of your desire to be a faithful follower of Jesus. I think about the time in which I'm meeting with an unnamed uh, professor in an unnamed university, worried. She has a graduate program. She <clears throat> loves and cares for her graduate students so that when any of them get married, she goes to their wedding. One of her students uh, uh, is, is gay, is going to have a, a wedding, someone of their own gender, and now she's in a dilemma. She's not going to go. What is she going to say? What's going to happen? Because if she doesn't go to this, that's going to be pretty obvious. In other words, her concern is this. Her career is on the line. And if it doesn't play out the right way, her aspirations were to become a dean. That, those aspirations are over with, depending upon how things play out. It's dangerous. It's dangerous in this world now. She's determined to remain faithful to her Lord. So some will guard you with hostility. Some will regard you as foolish. Some will think you're a hateful person. And as I've illustrated, as time goes on, you may find jobs that you have wanted to have, but they're denied you. And you're going to feel like David, that everyone is against you. In the same way that David was, was a hunted man, because, precisely because God had favored him. You're going to go through trials precisely because you belong to Jesus. And so remember, the Lord is the upholder of your life. Stay faithful to him. Know that he remains faithful to you. My dearest friend in college, came in ministry that I did, has left it all. Has left it. Stay true. Whatever doubts may come to you, whatever trials will test you, stay true to Jesus. Always keep before you what he has done for you. Your king lived and was filled with the glory of heaven, and he left that home in glory. He became the true anointed one of God the Father, precisely so he could fight the battle against sin and death for us. He died to save us from our sins, and such is the love of God the Father and the Son. Never forget your Lord. And if there's anyone here who is yet to confess, Christ is your Lord. Well, all the harder it is in today's world to take that step. Depending where you live or you go to school or work, making a decision for Christ will mean that your friends will turn their backs on you. I tell you, it is a much braver decision today than it was when I, in a small southern town, gave my life to Christ as a teenager. I was congratulated. You likely will be laughed at. You're not promised an easy life by following Jesus. But you are promised the greater blessing. God will become your helper. God will become your father. Christ will become your Lord and your brother. 
you will belong. For the, the first time you will truly belong to the creator of this world. And you will inherit the destiny of blessing that is eternal, that is wondrous. You will know what it is to know that the Lord, the, the creator of heaven and earth, is on your side forever. We give you thanks, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he delighted in all other th- more than anything else to do the will of his Father. By your will came and has saved us. May we trust you. May we trust our Lord. Hold, our fa- hold us fast to be on our side. In his name we pray. Amen.